this is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Contra.Scot. And today I'm speaking to Tom Stevenson, who's a journalist at the London Review of Books and elsewhere, uh, who has a new book out uh, with Vaso, Someone Else's Empire, British Illusion, Illusions and American Hegemony. Uh, Tom, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. It, it seems like a very interesting time to be discussing uh, British foreign policy um, and the slightness of British foreign policy, perhaps, and the relationship between British foreign policy and American foreign policy in whose firmament it obviously sits. Because Britain is increasingly entangled from Ukraine to Palestine to the South China Sea in the in the mechanisms of of American power and I feel like first I want to ask you this because um I feel like there's a growing public awareness now uh of the West being in retreat that's something that's been said for quite a long time but more on the political margins I feel like now it's entering a kind of mainstream political consciousness that the Western paradigm, American empire, we can see its limits quite explicitly now, the rise of multipolarity and so on. And recent events from Afghanistan to Ukraine to Palestine seem to have kind of illustrated a certain weakening in American power. Um, Do you think that that's uh, a correct reflection on where we are, are at historically? Um, to what extent do you think this is true? To what extent do you think American empire is weakening? I mean, I've uh, tried to argue that that story, which I think has become pretty much the dominant story, uh, has several problems with it. Not that it's completely false. I mean, certainly it's pointing in a direction which contains some degree of truth. However, I've tried to argue that particularly the idea of multipolarity is a mistake. Um, A decade decade or so ago, the the writer Anders Stevenson argued that there was a problem with polarity as a metaphor in international relations. In that, I mean, it's it's a metaphor for magnetism. And in that respect, it only really works if you're talking about bipolarity, two poles of power, which made sense during the Cold War. And that ideas of either unipolarity or multipolarity were ended up getting confused for that reason. I, I, I think it's a useful metaphor, nonetheless. But I do think that it that if we're going to use it, we should try to start with an analysis of how we actually think the lay or the distribution of power is in the international system at the moment. And in my view, I think it's quite clear that economically, the world is not multipolar, but tripolar. There's a North American core based around the United States. There's a European core, which is okay, slightly more diverse, but nonetheless somewhat centered around Germany and Northern Europe. And then there's an East Asian core, which is now centered around China, used to be centered around Japan. And I think that that's borne out in all of the data. However, we're not talking only about sort of industrial capacity or GDP. We're talking about international power, which is manifest in other ways. And there, I think what's striking is that we're still in more or less a unipolar world. I think that if you look at the distribution of international power, whether it's in terms of military strength, economic centrality, uh, pure naval strength rather than sort of overall military strength, and in other respects, the United States still has a pretty much incomparable advantage. 
And so the picture that I think is more accurate is, is not so much that we've entered a multipolar world, which I think you see in newspaper columns practically every week, but that we are in a world that is economically more, it is economically tripolar, not unipolar in the way that it would have been um, after, shortly after the Second World War, but in which international sort of hard power is still very concentrated in the United States. And the effort of the US to retain that power position despite, sort of in spite of, the slightly more equal way of economic power and industrial development, particularly characterized by the rise of China, is a better description of the, the current international system. Um, so I sort of, I think that one could complicate that description in a few ways, but that's my, my starting point. And I think that, um, I think it's more accurate. Mostly what we're going to be discussing in this interview is Britain's place within that picture. Um, and within the picture of kind of the relative decline of American dominance. But first of all, historically, how did Britain become a lieutenant of American power? Um, of course, in the first half of the 20th century, Britain could still make a claim to being the preeminent world power, still possessed a huge empire, a maritime empire, territorial empire, um, and uh, and controlled a significant area of kind of global trade um, as well, crucially. Um, but tell us what happens from from the, perhaps the the end of the Second World War. Um, I mean, how easy a transition? I always I always I've increasingly thought, um, especially after reading um, Edgerton's um, book on the on on the British nation. Um, which kind of makes this argument that, you know, talk of decline underestimates the extent to which uh, Britain made quite a good transition away from its imperial past. Um, but give us your picture of, of that development. How easy a transition was it really? Um, was the tension inside the British elite about whether or not to join up with America and become a kind of... Uh, you know, a kind of subordinate to the American regime. Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating story. And if you'd allow me, I, I like to sort of start it slightly earlier, sure. uh, which is uh, in 1907, the, the, in my view, the major intellectual figure in the British diplomatic establishment was Aya Crow. And Aya Crow described um, the character of Britain's foreign policy as being um, defined by just a few factors. The first was its position as an island state on the ocean flank of Europe, but with uh, a vast network of overseas colonies and dependencies, which relied on Britain maintaining predominant sea power for their existence to continue. But that was 1907. I think that's a pretty good description of how the situation was. Um, within one generation, the preponderant sea power was gone. Britain had had ceded its naval global naval naval advantage to the United States at first the Washington and then the, the London naval conferences, and then within two generations the vast overseas colonies and dependencies were all gone. Uh, story which we don't need to sort of lay out in, in total depth, but into into the early nineteen seventies until nineteen seventy one, you still have some British formal colonial presence in the in the Persian Gulf, for example. Uh, well, that obviously changed the picture quite quite substantially. Uh, so, so what was left? And I think uh, this, this Braudel put the the power transition sometime in I think 1929, uh, anyway, sometime in either the late 1920s or late 1930s, when America becomes clearly far more globally powerful than than the British Empire was or had been. 
after the Second World War, there is still a tension about this. So you can see, for example, that um, Churchill is emphatic about the need for the British Empire to continue after the Second World War. And yet even Churchill, within 10 years, by the uh, early 1950s, is arguing that Britain's overriding foreign policy concern has to be to stay close to the Americans, which is uh, what Boris Johnson, incidentally, was quoting on his retirement, uh, stay close to the Americans. He sort of picked up the same message. And that shows, I think, a sort of certain layer of continuity. So what happened? Well, I mean, in my view, the the, the transition was was slow and uneven. It's very tempting to sort of point to, say, one date, Suez is usually the traditional one, and say, oh, well, here is the moment when Britain sort of either realizes that it has to give up on its global ambitions or is forced to. But I think it was, it was somewhat more complicated than that. I, the most significant moment, in my view, is 1962, because there's a few uh, interesting developments that year. The, the first is the cancellation by the U.S. of the Skybolt program, which was considered a major strategic program by the British, British government. It was supposed to be the future of Britain's nuclear weapons program, always referred to euphemistically as the nuclear deterrent. Uh, and the U.S. unilaterally cancelled it in a way that was considered sort of somewhat rude by the Whitehall establishment. And in the same year, you have Dean Acheson, who was then probably the foremost uh, American strategic planner at the State Department, uh, who gives this famous line that Britain has lost an empire and still not found a role. And that the fact that that quote is still brought up to this day, and um, in fact, Tony Blair made sort of quite pointed mm. remarks about it, I think demonstrates that it was, uh, if it was a barb, it was a well-placed one. Um, and in the, the same year, again, 1962, Atchison also writes a very important missive to uh, the American ambassador, Robert Schetzel, in which he says, what we need to do with, with Britain from the U.S. Point of, point of view is to get it to act as our lieutenant. So uh, that, that ends up being, I think, quite influential. And I think that one could, could quite persuasively argue that that is what happened to British foreign policy, that uh, U.S. leaders were ultimately able to end up getting Britain to act as their lieutenant. Uh, so what do we mean by lieutenant? I think firstly, I mean, in the crass etymological sense, the word means local placeholder. And that that idea of location, of physical location is important because the British Empire didn't disappear overnight. In some respects, there's sort of the tiny remnants of it are still with us today. What Britain still had was this geographical uh, sense of positions around the world that were either formal naval former naval bases or uh, deep sort of ties with local elites in, in the Persian Gulf would be a good example, but also elsewhere, Brunei, um, you know, not the most important place in the world strategically, but they existed sort of all around the world, these residual rump imperial possessions. And they ended up being very useful to American power, either as staging posts or as listening posts in a sort of a what would later become the, the global scale um, uh, intelligence and surveillance network that's overseen by the NSA uh, with GCHQ support. Um, so this idea of local placeholder, I think, became interesting. And then, of course, lieutenant is a military term. And what Britain has been really useful in doing, um, at least since the 1990s, is serving as a kind of gratis mercenary for American power when needed. Uh, and that's, I think, also, we could probably go into that more, but that's been a, a, an, an interesting trend. Whereas in the sort of the 1960s, you could have um, Labour governments that were not totally reticent, but would not 
simply join every American military foray in automatically. Famously, Wilson decides not to send troops in Vietnam, although even in that story, in fact, Britain did su supply various kinds of support for the war in Vietnam, allowing and freeing up American naval assets to be redeployed, whereas Brit British naval assets would take their places and do jobs they were doing elsewhere and so on. Um, from, from the 1960s, however, through to the 1990s, you get a real change. And by the 90s, and then, of course, in the global war on terror, you have Britain acting just automatically um, as an adjunct to American military power wherever it is needed, not just providing sort of a friendly voice or the, the sheen of multilateralism at the UN, but actually providing soldiers, military equipment as and where they're needed, obviously on a much smaller scale than the US. But, you know, if you can add an extra 10% to your military power, that's not too bad, I think. And I think that's what the that's what's happened to British foreign policy roughly um, right up to the present. So I think that's really interesting because um, I, th I suppose when I first became aware of international events around the time of the war on terror, 9-11 and afterwards, I sort of assumed that Britain's extraordinarily close and you might say kind of slavish um, attitude towards the United States was an old thing. Like, like I, I assumed automatically, this has been going on for 50 or 60 years since the end of the Second World War. Um, but you're saying that this degree um, of slavishness is actually a, a relatively modern event. Event, It's, it's, it's to, to the last few decades. Yes, exactly. I, I think that's in a, it's maybe it, it, it might come across as a technical matter, but I think it's very important. I think that uh, there's been something of an evolution towards this position. In the 1960s, for example, the late 1960s, you can still see within, which we now have declassified within cabinet office meetings and so on, a fair amount of questioning on the part of British ministers about the degree to which Britain should simply be aligning itself with whatever the US does. For example, uh, in the late 1960s, the US requested um, that Britain maintain some of its Far Eastern um, military positions, which was very expensive. And you can see that uh, you can see British British planners saying, well, why should we be doing this? when We don't have the empire there anymore. Um, and this I think did develop over time, even if we go to, say, the Falklands War. Um, it's obvious that Britain was not completely in lockstep with American policy there. Uh, Certainly, America was ultimately very important in, I mean, it's now, it's been admitted since the Sidewinder missiles provided by Caspar Weinberger were very, very useful, in fact, necessary in that military operation. But at the time, prominent military historians, figures like John Keegan, Michael Howard, who were very influential, um, they're pretty much conservative figures, but very, uh, very, very sort of old world establishment uh, conservative figures said, look, the, Fal the Falklands War might show a resurgence of British power as an independent pole in international affairs. We look back on that now and sort of that's striking, you know, because it's it's just the opposite of what happened. But they, they could still sort of entertain that as a possibility. Whereas by the by the 1990s, it's just completely different. The figure is that, you know, if Britain is going to have a role in international affairs, it's going to be either euphemistically upholding the norms of a rules-based, what would later be called the rules-based international order, or simply as an adjunct to American power. And that's where you get the rhetoric in the 1990s of Britain punching above its weight. Instead of being a potential resurgent hole in international affairs, we're punching above our weight by being attached to American projects. 
Um, the, 19, the 1990s is an interesting one because it is qualitatively different to what we see in the 20, in the see, turn of the millennium. Because, say, interventions in Kosovo or Sierra Leone, they were talked of in sort of very, very heightened terms as evidence of a new enlightened form of foreign policy. This was Britain acting on the basis of a moral compass for the first time. Grand stories really placed on these events. When we look back at them now, already those seem like sort of odd ways to frame the subjects because they were ultimately very minor events. I mean, we, we can have all sorts of technical discussions about, or indeed ethical discussions and should, about, say, Kosovo or Sierra Leone, but we don't say that they're evidence of any grand overarching change in the way that foreign policy is determined either in Britain or anywhere else. We, we see them correctly as much more, in the case of Sierra Leone, much more modest and quite minor events. But they were they were taken to be something much grander. And in fact, the direction in which they led were as justifications for Britain's role in Afghanistan and then later in Iraq uh, on the, under the rubric of humanitarian intervention. Um, yeah, it's interesting. That it's interesting how later events can redefine, you know, a moment in history. The 90s now appears like the kind of golden era of humanitarian intervention, where there was briefly kind of broad civic society, at, you know, support for this idea of we're fighting all these many World War Twos. You know, I mean, we're saving uh, civilian populations from various uh, dangerous retrograde elements around the world. But with, by by the time of the Iraq War, this idea of humanitarian war is already coming apart. You know, people are already sort of questioning it uh, quite widely and, and, and so on. And I suppose today as well, the wars in the Balkans, in light of Ukraine, um, look like a precursor. You know, they look like we're already sowing the seeds for a confrontation uh, in Eastern Europe. But we'll we'll get on to that. One thing I think is really interesting from the book, one of my favourite chapters, in fact, is the one about the Anglophone world and how um, the Commonwealth was repurposed by the United States. And for me, this kind of helps to solve a riddle about the decline and fall of the British Empire, which is, in my imagination, and perhaps this is a widespread thing in imagination, I always think of the collapse of an empire as, uh, you know, I, I think about Rome. You know, I think about the sacking of Rome or, or something like that. I think of it as a catastrophic moment where the entire edifice just implodes um, and the whole, even the idea of the civilization is lost, you know, in the ruins of, of the empire. And for me, it was always a bit odd that Britain quite consciously managed to wait its empire. So you mentioned those two naval conferences between Britain and the United States, where Britain makes a conscious decision to no longer be the preeminent sea power because it knows it can't afford it, right? So let's get out of this some kind of new accommodation, which is gradually moved towards. What's fascinating, I think, about the British Empire, and your book really makes me kind of think about this, made me think about this in a new light, is it's almost like the former external provinces of the empire outgrow the metropolis and then ultimately sort of absorb it. You know, so it's like the locus of power shifts to what was once a British colony, and that colony not only um, brings the, the old metropolis under its umbrella, but also the other uh, Anglophone areas of the uh, of the empire, including you know Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Um, I mean, is that I mean, is that a kind of accurate picture of what happens here? 
Yeah, I think something like that is 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 obviously the case. I mean, the, the meta, the, well, the comparison that I like here is uh, somewhat of an unusual one, but I think the maybe the best one, which is with the with the Mongol Empire, which is in contrast, of course, the Mongol Empire was not founded by a metropolis. There was no equivalent of London that sort of then branches out in the rest of into the rest of the world. However, mutatis mutandis, something like that happened, which is you have an enormous spread, uh, geographical spread of uh, Mongol. Uh, political influence, which then creates uh, something like the equivalence of a United States in Australia or Canada um, across the vastness of the Eurasian steppe, and then themselves sort of then at various times become the, the real centers of power within this, this greater world. And something like that happened um, I think with with the, the Anglophone world, with the Anglosphere, um, of course not by horses but by ships. Um, so I think British planners recognized, certainly by the 1930s, that global power was now a game for subcontinental scale states. It was no longer going to be realistically possible for a relatively small island to be competing against the scale of the United States, of a major state in, in Western Europe, of the Soviet Union, of China, something like that. And so they recognized that some degree of managed decline had to happen. Unless, of course, it was possible to continue knitting together completely the the great sort of geographical expanse represented by places like Canada and Australia. But once CEP, it was clear that it was not going to be possible for Britain to maintain its global navy at the expense of, say, the US and Japan accepting subordinate roles. That was just no longer viable. So what happened was the US ended up sort of supplanting it and taking over the fundamental structure of that Anglophone world. But with itself, as you said, as, as, as the new center and the new and much more dynamic center. And this was, I think, both recognized and to some extent celebrated, which is why you still see, I think, a certain degree of enthusiasm about uh, Britain still partaking in a project that it can feel that it what of, of which it was the genesis in some in some respect. Practically speaking, as you hinted at, it has proved very useful because the countries that we're talking about here are are the countries of five eyes. And uh, this is, I think, probably the, the, the real world manifestation of this, which is that you end up with this, uh, with this system of all of the Anglophone, uh, Anglophone countries, the major Anglophone countries, uh, either, which were previously referred to as the white dominions, with the exception of South Africa for, um, for interesting reasons, of course, uh, and ending up participating in the global surveillance system. And not only that, but then building up around that other forms of military alliance, which, of course, we continue to see today with the AUKUS Pact being the most recent of them, although by no means the only one, um, and still serving to function as sort of part of a, to some extent, organic whole, which plays this role fundamentally subservient to the United States, but nonetheless feeling that it can have some sense of ownership to it. I think that's probably sort of the, if there is a strong argument, the strongest argument in psychologically in favour of British foreign policy is something like that. It's a it's a really interesting concept and also makes me think that, and I, I try not to think about the world in these sorts of racial terms, because especially since Ukraine, you've seen a real kind of racialization of rhetoric around foreign policy. The idea of civilizational warfare has really returned with um, a lot of aggression. But I do think it's not unimportant that um, the global capitalist system has been dominated not only by white Europeans um, or people of European extraction, 
but also English speakers since really the dawn of the global system, right? I mean, not since the, the dawn of capitalism as such, but since that system became a kind of totalizing world system, it's always been led by people either in, you know, London or Washington, which makes me feel that the coming conflicts with the relative, uh, as, I, as I stress, decline of American hegemony, you, you can't have that dynamic that Britain experienced where little brother becomes big brother and takes over once you've lost your your ability to project power around the world bring us forward to the to the present day i mean we talked about how in the kind of 90s and early 2000s um britain becomes increasingly tied to uh an image of american order on a global scale what is the status of britain's specifically military force uh, by this point, what does the British Armed Force actually look like? Because you all, when when you do hear the British Armed Forces discussed on the television or in newspapers, which is quite rarely, we're not really a country that talks these days very much about our, you know, our our armed forces, right? Um, you hear on the right grumbling about how small the armies become, um, you know, about difficult projects in the Navy and so on. You very, I mean, of course, I'm only uh, 30 miles or so from Britain's uh, independent nuclear deterrent, which, as you said, is a euphemism. It's not really independent. Um, but there's very little debate about that, of course, in, in the British media um, as well. What does, the, what does Britain's military force actually look like today and what can it feasibly do? Yeah, I, mean, I think that this is a point on which um, the critique from the right is important to take into account, not because I think it's correct, but because I think it really gets at something quite vital, uh, which is that it's it's quite clear that Britain does not possess the same sort of sheer military strength that it had even in, say, like the 1980s. Um, the decision to resurrect the aircraft carrier program, for example, was a, a major strategic decision. Uh going back to having two supposedly working aircraft carriers with, you know, the accompanying escort vessels and so on. And of course, aircraft that are necessary for all that. That's a huge project. Uh, and as we've seen, in fact, it's been a project that so far has been in practice quite difficult to sustain for various reasons, just unable to get um, to build enough ships and, and unable to build enough air or acquire enough aircraft. Um, very difficult. So we have here is, I think, a, sort of an interesting um ambivalence which is on the one on the one hand in my view politically speaking there's been very 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 little reaction or questioning of the idea that britain should be ready at all times to serve as a sort of an adjunct to american military power whenever needed and this is very open i mean for example the former US, uh, undersecretary for defense in the us colin Cowell, visited london uh, about two months ago and at Chatham House and said very, very openly, look, we simply expect that if there's any kind of major political confrontation or even or military confrontation, even with China, we simply automatically expect that Britain will be along for the ride. But this is right, right there on the open. And I think that's not questioned. On the other hand, the actual ability to maintain major useful military forces that can in fact operate globally has been very, very difficult for Britain as a policy. There's no question. So on the one hand, we have, I, I feel, quite a bellicose political culture with regard to the use of force internationally. And on the other hand, we have, if not decadence, then 
the general problem of economic malaise within Britain, the inability to try to come up with a functioning model for, for, for economic growth in any sense. I think evidence of various kinds of economic decline, which are just clear in the society, uh, there's a real problem there, which is on one hand, you have, you know, the, a, a willingness of mind and, and, and uh, a lack of will, uh, a lack of ability on the body. It's, uh, it's been very striking. So all of the new uh, projects which come up end up having various kinds of logistical challenges, end up becoming vastly over budget and therefore getting cut. Uh, even though no defense secretary ever wants to, most defense secretaries end up having to try and justify small reductions in the overall size of the armed forces. And I think this the attempted solution that's been lighted on is the idea of the literal response, which is that instead of trying to maintain a first-class army by global standards, which of course is the rhetoric and continues to be the rhetoric, what's been done is to try to, to get the uh, to reorganize British military power as far as possible towards a kind of a marine commando model, which is smaller but more specialized, it, more integrated somehow with special forces culture. And interestingly, of course, less accountable as a result of that, because that is the, the milieu of special forces culture is, is a deliberate lack of transparency and accountability. And I think what we're slowly seeing is the idea that what should happen is Britain should, should steadily turn into a military force that is in fact, not only acting as an adjunct, but designed to be an adjunct. That is no longer designed to be sort of a full-scale military power of its own, but designed to, to to fill special niches with regard to, I mean, literal response is, uh, is uh, technical jargon, but with the idea that you know, we need to have sort of the, the right kinds of boats, aircraft, transport, and so on that can deliver a relatively small number of quasi-special forces style Marines, which are not really special forces because, you know, you need more of them than, than just a tiny number of operating in secret, but something be between Marine commandos and special forces. Uh, in fact, we see this even in the British Army with the uh, creation of the Rangers, or at least the planned creation of the Rangers. Um, so very interesting development. And then the other development has been the attempt to try and refocus on Europe, which is... It, American strategic, strategic planners from um, both the Republican and Democratic tradition have been very clear that they want as far as possible to try and focus on China, though of course they never can. And in order to do that, they need to be able to do less in Eastern Europe. And so Britain from 2015, you get the creation of the Joint Expeditionary Force. Uh, and then from 2016, you get the decision to permanently station a small number of British forces in Poland. And that seems to be the model. Britain is to fulfill the specialist niche of kind of quasi special forces style military uh, military capability, and then do more work in the Baltics and in uh, and in Eastern Europe. That's that's how I see it, but certainly still a developing situation. I often think, um, and your book kind of checked this attitude of mine. I often think that, I mean, you mentioned Britain's economic problems there. I usually think of them as the price that Britain pays for the preponderance of its uh, financial system. A point you make really well in the book, though, is, I mean, Britain's financial system, however much it dominates the British economy, is absolutely dwarfed by the scale of American financial power, dollar power, American control of the international infrastructure of trade uh, and commerce. Um, I mean, how how much is the city of London really uh, important to the United States. I mean, when they look at Britain as a strategic partner in Europe, 
How much of this has to do with the military? How much of it has to do with finance? How much of it has to do with diplomacy, perhaps, in the rest of Europe? Which is the most important kind of app that Britain has? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And it's, I mean, in terms of, it's it's probably one where the the real nitty gritty of the financial analysis is probably slightly beyond me. But my impression is that there is a tension there, which is, I think, from the US position perspective, it would be ideal if, if Britain acts as a kind of Hong Kong with regard to Europe, you know, the offshore financial center, which is often how it in fact has behaved as well as being kind of employer of last resort in various moments. Um, and there's no question that London has historically played a very important part. I mean, in the, the euro dollars, for example, in the development of, of the global financial system. But as you say, it's not that um, the city of London has retained this preponderant position in the in the global financial system in, in a way that New York hasn't. That simply isn't the case. Uh, I think if you if you look at the Helen Ray or someone like that, who's a real expert in these matters, you really see that a lot of that is sort of masking the sheer dominance of new york in in, in every respect in, in in terms and that's why the us is able to wield um sanctions weaponry in the way that it can britain of course has sanctions policies but no one really cares about them i mean this morning there was a they announced a load of sanctions on a few people no one has ever heard of in syria and haiti and belarus but you know that's not what makes the news and quite rightly american sanctions might su- succeed or fail in their own terms, but the, they can be used to attempt to, you know, terminally damage an economy, as been as has happened in Iran, or try to do the same thing to Russia with much, much less less success. Britain isn't in a position to be able to do that, and I think if the if if London's position in the international financial system were more were less important intermediary and more real centre or core, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, so. Then what what is Britain supposed to do? I I think economically the the massive financialization of the economy certainly fits into the global capitalist system in something like the way you described, with regard to being something some kind of intermediary between um, the enormous productivity of American capitalism and then Europe, and especially in, in terms of the remaining European manufacturing uh, manufacturing uh, centers in in Germany and in northern Italy and so on. Um, but then with regard to what else Britain is supposed to do. Diplomatically, I think it's supposed to still play the role of giving the appearance of multilateralism to what's really American diktat. Uh, and then, you know, other things too. So we've, I mentioned before special forces. Well, countries like Britain and also Australia, incidentally, have advantages over U.S. special forces, not in terms of training or whatever rah-rah stuff likes to be talked up in the right-wing British press, but in terms of the, the secrecy and transparency laws, British special forces and the entire and the intelligence system around it are much more shielded from scrutiny, much less subject to any kind of even pretense of transparency than our American forces themselves. And so in, within Five Eyes and within intelligence operations and occasionally within special forces operations, they're they're able to I think do things, but because not because they have necessarily expertise that the American system doesn't have, but because they have this shielding from any sense really of of proper scrutiny. That's I think coming out quite clearly now, albeit belatedly with Afghanistan, as we see just horrific accounts of what British special forces were doing in Afghanistan, um, and which almost nobody knew about. 
in which the relevant military commanders were able to just keep the evidence locked up in a safe and no one until now knew about it. And the hearings which are going on about it are happening basically in secret. In the US, these things tend to come out much more readily. Uh, so, you know, that's that's another sort of function that I think British foreign policy has globally. And it's a function that we can see playing out uh, in present. I suppose, I mean, not in the sense of direct engagement, um, but it's we can see Britain's um, usefulness in America's international order in the present situation in Palestine. Um, I was thinking the other day, the Royal Navy has been sent to the region. Britain's bases are in use uh, in Cyprus and elsewhere. Uh, we know from the reporting of Declassified um, that uh, Britain's uh, base on Cyprus is being used to transfer weapons and much else uh, to Israel for the, the bombardment of Gaza. Um, and we know uh, as well, well, we know that some other bases are being used and we know that the RAF is being used for reconnaissance over Gaza, the RAF is claiming that that is purely in an, in an effort to rescue hostages and people can take from that what they want. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, asked in the parliament a few days ago if any British troops were there on the ground and the government simply refused to answer. I know that some other MPs have asked the government this question and they have also received no answers This and, and on the question of, of Cyprus. Um, as well. So, I mean, it is incredible the extent of secrecy uh, in which British military and logistical operations uh, are carried carried on. Um, but I was also thinking, I mean, you know, there are points of tension in wider British society over British national sovereignty, have been especially in regards to the European Union. Uh, and I agree with many of the, the critiques of the European Union, but there's nowhere near the same heated acrimony over uh, Britain's relationship to the United States, which is absolutely key to the direction and development of this country over, over the last five or six decades, particularly on the British right. Why has this never become a problem for them? There are a few outriders, the Peter Oborns, the Peter Hitchens, um, you know, people of that ilk who perhaps have a more kind of uh, kind of paleo-conservative attitude. You know, there's a there's a sense from them of the understand that Britain's being humiliated um, in this in this new role, um, and there's an anger over the limits of of British foreign policy independence and so on. But that's that's basically kept to a handful of intellectuals. Um, it's never become a problem for the British right that to a very significant extent, we have lost our independence to America. How? How does that? I mean, I, I often just think, you know, especially in recent weeks with what's going on in Palestine, with the extent of Britain's involvement here, not just giving diplomatic cover and the miserable things that our politicians have said about what's happening in Gaza, but with this you know, everything but direct engagement military, uh, you know, full spectrum military uh, uh, kind of, you know, supply and so on to to, to Israel. Um, we are implicated in what, you know, in, in a historic crime and, there's, and with no obvious gain to Britain and there's no anger, there's no kickback, especially from the political right about this situation. How do they get away with not being tarred with the brush of people who don't care about Britain's national independence? Yeah, I think that's 
what a question absolutely i mean because what one might well say well well look okay yes all right britain acts in this way internationally as a sort of a, as as a lieutenant of the us but so what you know uh every country let's say uh plays a hand it's dealt and this the british elite has an establishment has chosen to play it this way and it makes you know it has a kind of internally coherent logic and i think the answer to that is well look where it's led us i mean even before gaza look at the terrible destruction of, the, of 20 years of the global war on terror four and a half to five million people dead more than 40 million refugees i mean it's it's unspeakable it's absolutely unspeakable and as you said britain is totally implicated in this and always has been i mean with regard to what's happening right now in gaza i mean it's it's simply horrific it's it's a depraved attack on a captive civilian population israeli leaders military and civilian just say constantly that that's what they're doing and all the evidence says that that's, that's what they're doing under a very thin pretense maintained by the british government and opposition that this is really some kind of targeted operation against hamas which is just completely false in any meaningful way it's unsupportable it's collective punishment and it's it's not just that it's, it's a kind of re, what i call retributive orgiastic violence it's almost the mirror of what hamas and other palestinian militant groups did when they found the festival it, it's it, it's it's that bad they've killed more than 100 un staff they, they've killed so many local journalists that it's practically impossible to keep count deliberately systematically destroying all of the infrastructure in Gaza Strip. It's unbelievable. And with that in mind, the British government and opposition has just maintained total support for what Israel is doing, and not just rhetorical support, because sometimes the argument is made, well, yes, but you, so what? You know, it doesn't really matter what Britain's position is on this war. This, I think this is sometimes presented as a sort of an intellectual critique that, you know, yes, but you're overstating the importance of Britain in the in the world system. But as you correctly said, it's it's not just rhetorical. It's a matter of everyday complicity with regard to Akrotiri in Cyprus being used for resupplying the Israeli forces, presumably with American uh, bombs that are being dropped on Gaza constantly. So totally there in the resupply. And as a result of that, I think it is a stain, it should be at least a stain on the conscience of every citizen what Britain's position has been in this war. It's outrageous. So, so why has it been allowed to continue? I mean, the question you ask is one to which I don't have a totally compelling answer. Um, but I do find, I, I share something of the confusion that there has never been really a nationalist response to this because you could imagine that from the right from those who say that they're really interested in say the dignity or sovereignty of of the british state and the british people that there might be some idea of uh that it might be a sort of, sort of undignified for britain to be uh, acting solely and totally at the beck and call of another state in the way that it does and yet you don't see that you never see that and I think that the only answer I could sort of give there is that what that suggests to me is the is the is the total lack of earnestness in any of those in any of those positions that the right wing nationalist position is basically empty that it really represents probably nothing more than a kind of crude racialist reading of contemporary politics with some as you said with some exceptions but if there were a real nationalist movement in britain surely one of its main targets would be to prevent british foreign policy from being simply subordinated to the uh to the current desires of another state but you never see that you never see it at all the only other i think the only other sort of slightly more 
um, gracious reading you could be would be to say that there's a there's a level of misunderstanding involved that say Times and Telegraph comment writers really do believe something about Britain that isn't true. They sort of really do believe the rhetoric that Britain has a first class military that it has uh, you know the outstanding diplomatic capability that it has you know it's it's that it is upholding let's say a, a rules based international order or something of that kind um in spite of all the available evidence which is abundant in the ruins of gaza um yeah it's an inter- i mean it's also it's um it's not like we're discussing something here which is um uh, you know it's unknown in in the western orbit for people to resist American dominance to at least some extent, right? I mean, this has been a permanent feature of uh, French foreign policy. Now, there are limits to how much in practice France actually breaks from uh, American preoccupations. But, you know, under de Gaulle, there was a kind of systematic program of trying to preserve at least some of France's uh, national independence. And we just don't see that at all in Britain. I wonder if, as you say, part of it, Part of how this is this whole process has worked out for Britain is that we have transisted from um, the British Empire to an American Empire, which shares a lot of kind of um, you know cultural commonalities, language, um, a certain view of the world, and a kind of teleological view of liberalism and its moral supremacy and so on. I mean, I often think you you mentioned Churchill earlier. His book about, you know, a history of the English-speaking peoples is interesting in this regard. Churchill is someone who's thinking about the future of um, Western power and how to make the transition seamless. And what he comes up with is a grand claim about um, the civilizational importance of the English-speaking peoples and their unitary kind of history. Um, In any case, um, I I wanted to just ask, finally about uh the forgotten war the rapidly forgotten war of ukraine um it, it was only uh, less than 2 years ago of course that ukraine consumed um the news agenda seemed to transform uh, in one swoop the kind of international uh picture uh this year saw the disastrous ukrainian counteroffensive which um, I think Ukraine lost more ground uh, than it than it gained uh, over the summer, and then the uh, situation in Palestine has sort of obliterated the the issue. But quietly and behind the scenes, it looks like um, the Ukraine front is falling apart. One of the uh, one of the things that's been unearthed in the last few weeks is members of Zelensky's own political orbit have started to admit what a number of journalists reported uh, last year, which is that in the early months of the war, there was an attempt that could have been fruitful to broker some kind of peace talks, um, and that this was scuppered by, among others, Boris Johnson. Um, Now, these reports, I mean, this is murky. We'll we'll perhaps never know the full truth, and it, it remains for... The history books to be written on exactly what happened here and for these things to be fully investigated. But it does seem like Britain played, I don't know if this is a, a something I've picked up from the domestic media here, or this is a genuine reflection. Britain was very eager to be in the vanguard 
of the NATO response to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, what what was Britain's angle there, and was that another attempt for Britain to prove itself or to find uh, a function in the American sphere? Yes, I think that was a significant part of it. I mean, the general rubric of finding ways to make oneself useful or appear useful to American power, I think, was very obviously operative uh, and is still operative uh, in some respects um, in the war in Ukraine. Um, I mean, I should preface by saying um, I'm not a Ukraine expert and don't speak Russian. However, I was in Ukraine. I did report on the war from the second week of the conflict at a time when there were relatively few reporters there and uh, no politicians making photo opportunities and so on in Kiev. Um, and what I found striking was that the the initial weeks of the war, everybody still understood to be a matter of defending Ukraine's political independence from a, what was very clearly a grave threat and categorically an act of, of aggression on the part of Russia. Um, but even in that environment, there was within Ukraine among, I, I spoke, for example, to senior advisors of uh, uh, former Ukrainian president, Leonid Kuchma, um, Everybody understood quite well that this was a war that was quite unlikely to be ended by Ukraine sweeping Russian forces from the field. Uh, in fact, there was somewhat of a more pragmatic tone. Certainly, there was everything that you would expect in terms of the need of, you know, of a sort of a country being invaded to, to fight back against the invasion. But there was also a recognition that this would probably have to be settled with some sort of uh, some sort of negotiated settlement at some point soon, and that that might involve unpalatable or uncomfortable um, political concessions from Ukraine's leadership. And at that time, it is also important to note, uh, through March and into April, there were negotiations going on between directly between uh, Ukrainian and Russian negotiators over a way to perhaps settle the conflict um, in a shorter time scale than has in fact come to pass. So. What can we say about this? As you said, there have been there were scattered reports about Britain and Boris Johnson in particular playing a role in trying to steer Ukraine away from um, some form of negotiated settlement with Russia. It's still very unclear exactly how that worked out. And then, of course, there is also the account of Naftali Bennett, who uh, said something reasonably similar about what the British and American uh, position of negotiations was. And then I think we also have to take into account that it's it's not like they were fore, foreordained to produce some kind of early mm. settlement of the war that would have been much less bloody. We don't know how that would have shaken out. All we do know is what then actually happened, which is a terribly bloody conflict, which I think morphed really by the late spring, early summer of 2022 into something larger than was at first envisioned. If at first the idea was to frustrate the Russian invasion, prevent it from taking Kyiv, uh, about which, for example, the CIA was in fact very negative in the early days of the war, that succeeded relatively quickly. And I made the argument in the New York Times at some point, I believe in the early summer, or maybe perhaps late spring of 2022, that a new war phase of the war had set in, which I think is still in place today, which is that since then, this general strategy has been much less about a categorical defense and much more about strategic gain. I think that there has been a policy, especially in the US, supported at every step by the UK, of trying to use the conflict to what I call bleed Russia, 
I, and this has been at some points open, you know, occasionally the metaphor gets brought up of the importance of turning Ukraine into Russia's Vietnam, for example, something like that as the model. Um, and if that's the case, well, what we've certainly seen is a stalemate, right? The US and its allies have in fact provided the precise amount of support to Ukraine, which has produced a terrible World War One style military stalemate, which is extremely costly in Ukrainian lives. Now, it's possible that there was no other way, excuse me, no other way that this could have played out. But that is, in fact, what had hap- what has happened. And with the failure of the counteroffensive, it's been very interesting. If you look at, say, General Zaluzhny's comments, who he wrote very, very candidly in, in The Economist a few weeks ago, uh, saying, look, what's happened is because of the level of technological development and the forces available in this war, we're in a total deadlock. We're in a stupor. And the in order to break through that deadlock, what would be necessary would be a technological miracle of the kind of the invention of gunpowder in China. I mean, that's an absolutely striking thing for anybody else to, to be able to say in the middle of a war. Well, you know, if that's the case, if what has happened is just an extremely bloody stalemate, it becomes very difficult to see a way out of this. And it's, of course, always difficult to to try to imagine how things might have gone differently. And it's always possible that it couldn't have gone differently. But I would insist that as citizens of, say, the UK or the US, our first responsibility is to try to scrutinize the actions of the states where we are citizens. Very often this gets sort of misconstrued as some form of apologism. But I think when it is coming from citizens of of Britain or the US, for example, trying to, attempting to form some kind of scrutiny, whatever we think of it, or some kind of assessment of the policies of our own governments, that there is in fact sort of an imperative to do that. And I think we should be asking questions about whether or not there might have been uh, better possibilities with some other other policy. But what we don't see, we don't see that. In fact, if we look at, say, expert opinion on the war in Ukraine, someone like uh, Ruth Diamond at King's College London, for example, what she says is that uh, the US, UK and Europe simply can't push for ceasefires on negotiations. And the reason she says that is because not not because it's sort of morally wrong. She says it would be too embarrassing, given the past rhetoric about Crimea and Donbass, to try to encourage any kind of political settlement that, say, uh, acknowledged Russian control of Crimea, which is, I mean, a relatively modest concession, as opposed to, say, you know, the idea that Ukraine would pledge Austrian-style neutrality or pledge not to join NATO or the EU or something like that. And then the second reason she says that if we can't have negotiations or ceasefire talks is that the prospect of freezing the war is unacceptable because then Russia would continue to have a sphere of influence and you can't allow Russia to have any kind of zone of strategic interest. Um, So it's not about uh, any sort of ethical principle about the war in Ukraine, but about the question of whether... Uh, negotiations with Russia would be too embarrassing or whether they would leave Russia with any kind of zone of strategic interest. Um, so that that seems to me to be quite far away from scrutiny of either the British or, or American policy on this war, um, which, as I said, it's it's possible that there's nothing that could have been done differently. But I think that we we have to take the, that question very seriously and not treat it as um, and not and not uh, slander it as a question of apology for, for Russia's war of aggression. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Um, and I, I think it's interesting that every time a war of this type breaks out, but not the, not when you know war breaks out uh, with the destruction of Gaza. In the case of Ukraine, we're all encouraged to be kind of international citizens or even elective Ukrainians, um, you know, for the duration of the war. Um, 
and to put ourselves in the in the shoes of the, the Ukrainian people, um, but never in the in the shoes of the people of uh, of Gaza. And it also just seems to me that, um, yes, I, I think I agree that it's our responsibility to hold our government to account. Um, but that when it comes to the independence of uh, of Ukraine, um, everything that NATO has done um, for you know over a decade has been the worst possible things <laughs> for the independence of the Ukrainian people, up and up to and including what you're talking about. Like um, you know, if 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 there were an earnest British policy about helping the Ukrainian people, we'd be offering concessions for Ukrainian land. But we're not doing that. And as you say, the defense intelligentsia is, is is really whatever is said about we can't abandon the Ukrainian people. This is about Western prestige, Western geostrategic interests. In fact, the most tragic thing is to think how many people are dying for ideas about prestige. I, I mean, I often think that uh, prestige, you know, you can look you can look at foreign policy in too realist a lens. Or two material lens and just think that everything is about strategic objectives or economic resources or something like that. Prestige is also important. You can understand why it's difficult for America and Britain and Germany, having invested so much moral economy in the war in Ukraine, to then just back away from it, you know, and, and leave Russia the victor. It, it's it's a cost counted in Western capitals, and we're willing to subject Ukraine to kind of never ending. Um, perhaps frozen conflict um, to avoid making, you know, to avoid spending that prestige. Um, let me just ask a final question. Um, I mean, keeping in mind the point that you made at the start of this conversation about multipolarity and the limitations of that uh, analogy, um, America clearly in the next century is going to come under increasing pressure on multiple fronts all the way from the Middle East to the South China Sea to Eastern Europe. Um, what's Britain's future in this? I mean, are we just going down with someone else's ship slowly and in the most managed way possible? And at what cost to the British state in terms of um, in terms of our economy? We've already seen, I mean, what's been interesting in the last couple of years is it feels obvious to me that the... Um, the, the 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 relative belle epoque that you and I have lived with um, all our lives, where there was a single empire that dominated both the Pacific and Atlantic oceans, therefore dominated most of the physical trade, also dominated the international currency system, you know, also dominated many parts of the world militarily. Um, that period now coming to a close means new instability. And we saw that in the last couple of years with the war in uh, Ukraine adding to um, inflation. I suppose what also added to inflation was that powers like Saudi Arabia are increasingly going rogue. Um, you know, the OPEC states increasingly acting out on their own, perhaps another sign of weakening American strength in the Middle East. Um, what What's Britain's future in this? I mean, you at, at the start of your book, you call on you call for a kind of more rational British foreign policy where we abandon the expeditionary uh, dimension of American of British military force um 
recognize Britain's position, which in many ways is a happy position. We don't have any immediate enemies, you know, in our part of the world. We're right at the western end of Europe. Um, we we require would require a very small defensive capacity. Um, instead, of course, we've geared our our armed forces and our foreign policy for um, this much wider American-backed role. How likely is that? I mean, do you do you envisage that that could become a real de- live debate in British society? There seemed a moment at the peak of Corbynism, especially after the Manchester bombing, which was widely received as kind of blowback, and Corbyn's brave speech, probably his his greatest moment, where he said what everyone in Britain was thinking, but no one could quite articulate, which was, this is, in part, the cost of Britain's foreign policy role. Is there any chance of that debate coming back? I, I think it's a very important question. And I think that to be to be optimistic, we can see, even in, say, the current crisis in Gaza, um, some evidence that that might be possible, in that there has opened up an enormous gulf between the very uniform elite consensus mm. and totally uh, opposing view among the general population yeah. which is the general british population really is is not is displays nothing like the consensus that there is about israel's war and i think that in other foreign policy questions that is it is possible that that comes to the floor to the to the floor excuse me um I'm not sort of totally convinced that the current British foreign policy is, say, reflective of underlying class conditions or, you know, to give a sort of a, an analysis or sociological analysis of that kind um, or a Marxist analysis of that kind. I see British foreign policy as still, as it is in most countries, kind of a technocratic idiosyncrasy. Um, it's still producing conclave. It's basically anti-democratic and so on. So in theory, at least, in principle, it should be possible that a political challenge to it could be launched. The trouble is that that isn't really what we're seeing. And probably for, for the same reason that you don't often see it in many other countries as well, which is that foreign policy does tend to become a kind of a niche interest and that political life is often fairly parochial and in, inward looking, not just in Britain, but sort of sort of in general. Um, the only thing we can say for certain is what what the current position is. And I think that Unfortunately, it was put very clearly and in no uncertain terms by Britain's ambassador in Washington, Karen Pierce, recently, who said the overwhelming British interest is that America remains the global leader on the world stage. And the one thing we should all be doing is urging no retreat in that leadership. That, I think, is not auspicious. And there is very little sign, at least at the sort of in, within the political class of a challenge to that since Corbynism. Um, the, then the question becomes, well, where does that in fact then lead us in the future? Aside from massive crimes against humanity, is it possible that it leads us into a further sense of ruin? And that probably brings us back to the, to the question of uh, uh, American confrontation with China. Because right now, the, the expectation within the US security establishment is that Britain is along for the ride in the event of any crisis with China. And that perhaps that question could at some point give us pause about whether or not Britain's general foreign policy direction has led us to a place that we don't want to be. In the UK, still, there's this anxiety for global influence, that this need to avoid being what Con O'Neill called a greater Sweden, right? Mm. 
when of course an irony because of course unfortunately if you walk around Britain today you see in just within minutes that the idea of being a greater Sweden would be an unattainably positive goal for Britain in its present condition um, but nonetheless within the governing elite at least there is this anxiety the need for Britain to do more than be a reasonably prosperous European country to be sort of a global leader in some sense and I think perhaps sadly the only challenge to that might come in the form of a really major crisis where Britain becomes embroiled in a fight which it has really no interest in in East Asia, uh, something of that kind. I'd like to think that it would take less than that, and perhaps it will. Perhaps it's possible that something like the the popular discontent that we see with Britain's policy in China, in Gaza, excuse me, um, can take on a more powerful political manifestation. Um, but there's not that much sign of it at the moment. Well, um, that's a hopeful note to end on, Tom. Uh, thanks very much for coming on and speaking to me. Thank you. Uh, and I would uh, recommend uh, Someone Else's Empire, British Illusions and American Hegemony uh, that you can get from Vassal Books. Um, do go out and buy it. It will equip you for the coming years, I'm sure, of uh, disorder uh, in the world system. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot.com.